0: Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host Alejandro Rojas. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me once again for UFO Think Tank Radio. We have a special ditty, a special show. I guess a special ditty would be a little song. And maybe I'll sing you one if we have some time later today. But uh, this is an a interview, actually, that we're doing today. And it's something I have drugged out of my archives. I was looking through my files, and I found this interview I did probably around five years ago. And I that was prior to me using Blog Talk here. So it's not in the archives, and it ought to be, because it's pretty interesting stuff. And it is with a gentleman, a friend of mine from Colorado named Don Daniels. He actually was with Sea for quite some time. I don't think he is now. Uh, he might be. I know he, he likes to still organize uh, UFO-watching outings in the lovely mountains of Colorado, away from the, the uh, lights. But he is a commercial airline pilot, and he also helped Dr. Stephen Greer with the disclosure project. And this was a uh, a, a project where Dr. Greer had put together an executive briefing with lots of witnesses uh, that were in the military or in uh, the private sector, uh, such as Bert. FAA officials, things like this, very credible people, uh, many, many of them, and then they put together uh, an executive summary uh, that was a few pages, and which you can get at the website for the Disclosure Project. Good stuff. And then they took that to uh, many people in Washington, D.C., and this all culminated in uh, May of 2001, a press conference at the Washington, D.C. Press Club. And uh Not only did Don Daniels help with that, but immediately after this big press conference where everybody got excited, they then held an event at the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado, in one of their large uh, lecture halls, uh, which seats a lot of people. And it was packed, says Don Daniels. It was uh, standing room only. People are pouring out of the door. People are trying to get in there to hear all about what uh, Dr. Greer had talked about. And there were some interesting things that resulted from that. And uh, we'll talk to Don about that, including that his sanity was put into question and he was grounded as a pilot for a period of time and uh, related to uh, the his involvement there. Uh, but we talk about that uh, and how he had to go through some steps. Luckily, it wasn't too traumatic for him to get his uh, pilot's license back in the fly again. And also... Uh, he then um, talks about how, you know, it's difficult for other commercial pilots to talk about UFOs and his whole experience that way. So it's a good interview. It is a while ago. The technology wasn't as good. Actually, I used to use this mini-disc player uh, recorder and a microphone attached to it. And mini-disc is actually a really good technology. I mean, that thing sounded great. Um, so I think it, it, it's... Not what you're used to. There's some static, but it sounds pretty good, and it's a lot of fun. It's a good interview. So uh, I think you guys are really going to like it. That's why I'm playing it for you, and I want to put it on the record so it's in the archives here. So I'm not kidding. You guys are going to like this. So I think he even talked about his sightings as a pilot and stuff. But some, And plus, you know, as far as this Boulder story goes with the weird stuff that happened, I don't know if people knew about it. Uh, let alone that this guy's experience is, uh, you know, talking and being interested in UFOs, putting his job in jeopardy as a commercial airline pilot. I don't think any of you are too surprised about that. But uh, luckily he stuck with it and fought it out and uh, was only grounded for a short period of time while he until he could get himself uh, reinstated. So it's it's an exciting story. Trust me. So that's coming up here in just a little bit. But before that, of course, we talk about the news, UFO news. One of the stories out there is the MUFON Symposium last weekend. So there were going to be some announcements from the MUFON Symposium, an announcement of some degree of importance. And it is pretty cool, especially for UFO researchers. Some of you know of Lens build. And uh, uh, I know we've had at least a couple people. I think Kevin Randall talked about him when I had him on the show. And I believe that um, there were others as well. In fact, I've got a story on a new book. Right? And uh, these people actually talked about it too. So um, where is that? Story. But, anyways, uh, we'll get there. A, a researcher who's researching uh, Aztec and things like that. So, Leonard Stringfeld, he was a researcher back in the day. He used to do a lot of his research for, or release it all in MUFON symposiums and in uh, MUFON symposium proceedings. And he was really investigating UFO crashes in the 70s, so a long time ago. And he had a lot of contact insiders with the uh, military, because uh, he was in the military himself. Uh, he was talking with FBI and CIA agents um, and the likes. So, we will see. And he worked with uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was the Blue Book uh, you know, Air Force guy, astronomer. And so, the the story is that his files have been lost or they have not been made available to the public, and MUFON was able to acquire now his files, which include all of his official correspondence with all of these different groups. So this is really cool for UFO people, especially those who are interested in Shrink Build's work. And it is because what MUFON's going to do is Categorize these, document these They've really got to go through all these files Like they say to to decide what we really have here And then um, all of this as as they get through it Will be made uh, available to the public uh, To look through And not only that As people are going through them You know some stories will arise Such as there's some speculation right now uh, About what's in there Such as you know, were uh, the FBI and CIA or others in the government interfering with his work? Did Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Gerald Ford get briefed by and Hannock? I don't know. These are some of the rumors and some of the stuff that might be in there. But uh, I think there's going to be some really interesting stuff in there that we'll be able to look up. Yeah, Lynn Stringfield was definitely a very interesting fellow. Um He says that uh, uh, one of the things that he saw, what really got him involved was when he was an intelligence officer in the Army Air Force in 1945. So this is before, I think it was really the Air Force, Air Force. He saw um, a teardrop shaped object from his three of them. From his starboard window, they were brilliant white, like burning magnesium, this is a direct quote, and closing in on a parallel course to their C-46. Suddenly, our left engine feathered, and I was later to learn that magnetic navigation instrument needles went wild. As the C-46 lost altitude with oil spurting from the troubled engine, the pilot sounded an alert, crew and passengers were told to prepare for a ditch, I do not recall my thoughts or actions during the next horrifying moments, but my last glimpse of the three bogeys placed them at about 20 degrees above the level of our transport. Flying in the same tight formation, they faded into a cloud bank. Instantly, our craft's engines revved up, and we picked up altitude and flew a steady course to land safely in Iwo Jima. So quite a harrowing experience, so it is no wonder... That he got very involved with this topic and made it a big uh, part of his life's work. Uh, So these files ought to prove to be very interesting. But that was the the big news from the MUFON symposium. The couple that I was mentioning earlier are Suzanne and Scott Ramsey. There is a people I was trying to think of uh, who have written written a book on the, the Aztec alleged UFO crash from 1947. And, in fact, I've had the Ramseys on my show. I think I had Scott by himself and then Suzanne and Scott on together in the last few years, and they have been working on this book for a long, long time. But uh, this book has just recently come out, and I mention it now just because it's kind of neat. The Lake Norman Citizen... Uh, is uh, in the Carolinas wrote a story about these guys and their UFO interests and their books and things like that. So that was kind of cool. The book, by the, by the way, is called Aztec Incident Recovery at Heart Canyon. So if you want to check that out. From what I've read, I haven't gotten the book yet, but I definitely will because um, I'm interested to see what they found out. But from the reviews, I have not heard uh, that there's extremely compelling information, Uh, however, that there is a lot of uh, well-done research here to really find, I mean, you'll get the details of the ins and outs around this uh, alleged crash, if not a smoking gun, that it actually occurred. But uh, some good research is what I hear. So excited about that. Uh, Otherwise, what's making big news or was making big news? And we talked about this last week was the blimp or, I'm sorry, the UFO seen over the Olympics during their opening ceremony. And, yes, it has been confirmed that it was a blimp. In fact, Lee Spiegel, who wrote the story that made a big fur -er on the Internet, Uh, also followed it up because he talked with Goodyear, and Goodyear sent him some images where you can tell that the uh, video was very similar to the blimp on these different images that Goodyear provided for him of the blimp at the Olympics. Some people have said, well, it doesn't say Goodyear on the site, and he found out That Goodyear is helping NBC doing some filming with their blimp. That's why they're there. However, they are not an official sponsor of the Olympics. They had to cover up the Goodyear name, which they've done so with a large blue sticker of some sort that looks just kind of like a blue stripe on the side of the blimp, and the rest is kind of silvery. So that is what gives it kind of this domed appearance. That people are seeing and uh, that is mystifying the public and really getting them so excited. They're all worked up in a frenzy and then it turns out to be a blimp. Some of you last week were probably saying, Alejandro, you told us that was a blimp last week and we thought you are a debunking son of a gun. And I'm sorry, but you know, I've been in this for a while and uh, like they say... You know, most UFOs are something mundane, and uh, that's what happened here. It was just a blimp, people. But that's okay. So, because there are other really good cases. That's what we want to focus on, the truly mysterious. Because that's where the meat of this subject lies. That's where we're going to make some headway, people. So, and uh, there there are a lot of great cases out there. So, um, but this was just a blip. Moving on. Canadian papers are still covering the story that came out. We talked about it last week about a Canadian UFO survey that talked about how there are, have been a lot of sightings in Canada and, lately. And the newspapers are still writing about this, which is kind of exciting. In fact, Calgary, a new pa- newspaper out there, wrote about how Calgary was ranked number two out of all the the cities with sightings. They talked about how across the country um, almost a 1,000 sightings were filed in 2011. So that's very interesting. Uh, MUFON does take sightings for them. You know what I'm going to do? Hopefully I'll remember to do this, is look to see how many sightings MUFON has gotten in Canada because I'll bet you... It's been about the same. MUFON gets, you know, something about like 500 sightings a month reported to them. Um, And some of those are in Canada. So I'll look that up because I'm sure uh, we're getting quite a few in Canada from MUFON too. So they're really excited about all the sightings out there in MUFON. Interesting stuff. One of the sightings that happened out in Maryland wasn't really a sighting. I voiced my frustration about this deal before and I will again. But the Air Force was schlepping across the country a few months ago this uh drone that looks like a UFO. And there were a couple of people that said, Hey, the you know, there's a UFO on the back of this truck and they were calling in and there's a big uh story about that. People were getting excited. Then in Maryland recently, they were driving this thing around again, and there was no big deal. They were they were the media tried to capitalize on the stories from earlier, and they were saying, "Oh, UFO! People are freaking out." They, no, no, people weren't freaking out. People knew this was not a UFO, but they still made a big deal out of it. So of course, they got to continue to make a big deal out of it. This week, uh, there were photos of that craft released by... It's actually a Navy. I'm sorry. It's a Navy drone. And they did kind of a, a promotional thing where they showed it flying. It's an unmanned drone. It's it's a pretty big thing. It's, it's cool looking. It does look like some kind of saucer or something. And uh, they put it out for show and people got a lot of pictures. The press went there and got a lot of pictures of this thing. And so this week we've seen a lot of pictures and Wired wrote, the Navy's Unmanned Autonomous UFO. Kind of a misuse of the term UFO because it's certainly not unidentified. It is identified. But Wired really not doing us any favors by misusing the term UFO and trying to make it seem like this thing is, uh, you know, what was mistaken for UFOs. And and it may have in the past but,
1: um, I'm so frustrated about it
0: and I can't because that's my right quit making goofy stories about stuff like this and uh, let's, let's pay attention to the real thing not blimps and drones people okay moving on to Australia there are all people that have said uh, that my attempted English accent sounds more Australian and perhaps it does, I am not of English nor Australian descent. And it's a terrible, I do, I don't do a very good job. I'm sorry. I'll stop that. But uh, more exciting about Australia is that they have released some of their UFOs files recently. The National Archives of Australia have put out some files. People calling them their ex-files. And uh, there have been a few stories there of some sightings, including um, a sighting that was seen by a dairy farmer in 1983. It was also seen by a constable uh, who was in a different location who said that it was his opinion that this aircraft was not normal. And uh, a bunch of other interesting sightings. However, and this story I'm referring to is from the Sydney Morning Herald. They also, and the, the sighting kind of in there that has gotten the most news is a couple of aircraft that were almost scrambled on a UFO. These were a couple Mirage jets, also in 1983 in June, that were about to be scrambled for uh, an object that was being caught on radar, moving between 1,165 100 kilometers per hour at a very high altitude somewhere between 70 to 150 nautical miles north of Sydney. So it was caught on radar at uh, the mascot airports and some Jets were put on alert at the Williamtown RAAF Royal Air Force uh, base So They weren't scrambled, and actually there was further investigation done, and it was concluded that they were due to interference, something called running rabbits. I hadn't heard of that. Maybe some of you radar experts out there have, so that it was some sort of radar glitch that uh, happened there, and there wasn't actually a UFO. But uh, they did say that uh, they spent... 66.5 days of overtime and 100,000 kilometers of travel in a staff car to investigate this thing. And uh, they had to, they really just, I guess the point here is they did a lot of investigation to figure out what this thing is. So uh, if this one turned out to be a mistake, um, I think the interesting question is, have they uh, spent this much time investigating other radar anomalies that were not mistakes, Um, because we certainly have heard in the Royal Air Force and uh, the United States Air Force cases where they did pursue objects that did not turn out to be just radar mistakes, but that the pilots had reported were anomalous objects that sped off at high rates of speed. So hopefully they'll release some more files. These files were only released, it says, Because their uh, classification status had expired, where they have an expiration, an expiry date out there. And uh, once the file's been classified for a certain period of time, they need to release it. Interesting. Very, very interesting. I told you a little bit about an open mind story last week on a gentleman named Dick French. And this is an ex-Air Force official he was actually um in he's a lieutenant colonel in the air force who says that he knows that in Roswell there were there wasn't just one crash that uh, ha- occurred there were two objects that crashed he says that the first one was shot down by an experimental US airplane that was flying out of White Sands, New Mexico. It was shot with an electronic pulse-type weapon that disabled and took away all controls of the UFO. And that's why it crashed, according to Dick French here. So, an interesting story. He says, you know, that uh, he was in charge of debunking Blue Book stories. that the Air Force, had told him... Okay, we want you to investigate some UFO stories back in the the 50s. However, we want you to explain them away, tell people how these UFOs were not really UFOs. So um, he says he's familiar with debunking and how the Air Force wanted to make sure people didn't think that real UFOs were UFOs. Uh, However, there is some doubt placed on the stories. For instance... Uh, John Alexander said that there was no chance, zero chance, that uh, this was true, that uh, John Alexander had actually worked on pulse power weapons and that we didn't have those in the 80s until the 80s, certainly not in the 40s. Um, and actually, you know, there's a, you can watch The Open Mind. This is, again, a Lee Spiegel story on the Huffington Post in the Weird News. He just posted it today so you'll be able to go check it out open minds however posted the video with an interview with this gentleman last week and i was particularly concerned about the colonel corso comment he made they he said he knew um colonel corso who was a colonel uh in the army who says that he had uh, been involved with the uh, been given uh, the responsibility to deal with um objects that were supposedly recovered from the Roswell craft and that he then gave them to various companies to develop technologies. And uh, this Dick French is like, oh, yeah, I knew Colonel Corso, and I remember the bodies in the spaceship he got, and they were all taken to Wright-Patterson. Well, that doesn't really jive with what Colonel Corso is saying. So there are some problems there. You know, one of the things that uh, Antonio Hunea said, who was really the first person to interview him, was that he also has some reservations about the claims. And and I talked to Antonio last weekend, actually, and he said, yeah, he's worried that some of these statements um, kind of are are not consistent and – And he told Lee Spiegel of the Huffington Post pretty much what he told me. He said, because of his age, his memory isn't as good as it used to me. It's uh, fairly clear to me that he's well read on the subject of UFOs, or he might have heard stories or talked to people. So I'm trying to separate exactly what he lived and saw directly from what he heard and read. And if you see this interview from Open Minds, you'll see exactly what he's talking about Cause he's kind of talking about UFOs and stuff, and it's hard to determine, okay, um, are you saying that this is what you suspect is the case, or is this what you know is the case because this is something you saw and were a part of while you were in the Air Force? And that is still a little vague, but uh, it sounds like this guy was part of something interesting, so hopefully there'll be some more interviews with him, and uh, we'll be able to determine exactly what was going on there. So a very interesting story. And uh, some more exciting news in that it's another retired Air Force uh, lieutenant colonel in this case who's talking about UFOs and uh, knowing about UFOs in the Air Force and that they did take them serious even though they tried to debunk them to the public. Very interesting. So check out the Huffington Post weird news. Final UFO story really here is uh, some UFOs spotted the chrome off the Cromers coast in... England. And this is a bright white and blue light. We're spotted uh, offshore out there. And this is a story that ran in the EDP-24. But just some more stories about uh, UFOs out in the UK. Uh, This is in North Norfolk. Happened on Saturday night. So uh, their media is still covering this stuff. And just a couple small things. Brooklyn. I don't know that anybody reported any UFOs in Brooklyn, but the fire department said uh, there was a, um, and they've got a video of it, it looks like. Uh, so it's a pretty cool video of this transformer exploding off the coast. And uh, let's see. Yeah, it, it was on a barge. So the transformer fire on a barge. So it exploded and lit up the sky and, um, there's some video of just this uh, super bright light flashing over in uh, near Manhattan. And uh, that's where people could see it from, was Manhattan. So they're saying, hey, don't worry, that wasn't a UFO. That was just uh, transformer blowing up. And then, of course, the big news is the Curiosity uh, Mars lander, which has landed out there, this big uh, robot. Up there on Mars, and it's going to be looking for life, which is really exciting. Although it's unfortunate. And who did we have on? We had a scientist on recently, who said what we need is a microscope on one of these babies to be able to tell if something's really life. But they don't put Michael, They haven't put a microscope on this robot either, which is unfortunate. But uh, that they do have other devices to look for other signs of life. So we'll see what they find. So so that's that, people. That is the UFO News. Of course, you can go to ufodailynews.com. That's ufodailynews.com. And read the uh, some of these stories. And, of course, you'll want to click on the UFO News feed to see all of these stories. Because that's my Twitter feed where you're going to see it all. And then if you want to be Twittered, then join the Twitter. If not... Go to the site and look at it, and you can read the stories there. If not, just listen to the show and um I'll tell you all about the stories here, whatever, whatever you wanna do, you know Lord knows I can't make you people do anything no, but thank you all so very much for listening to the show we've had a we always have a a good increase in listeners over uh time there's just more and more and more. And we were featured on iTunes lately. And if you are new to the show because of, you were brought here by iTunes, welcome. We are very happy to have you. But now let's listen to this interview from about five, five years ago with Don Daniels, an exclusive interview that was retrieved from my archives. And I think some really interesting behind the scenes with the Disclosure Project and Commercial Airlines that you just haven't heard before.
2: Hello, it's Alejandro Rojas with uh, UFO Think Tank, and today I'm here with Don Daniels. He is the local c representative, representative. Is that local to Denver
3: or Colorado? Uh, Colorado, basically. Okay. Uh, Most of the activities right here in the Denver, Boulder, um, Colorado Springs area. He was
2: uh, the first speaker uh, at my UFO Think Tank uh, discussion group, And um, mainly because Disclosure Project especially has been such an important thing to me. And funny enough, Disclosure Project is really what launched me into all of my research and my involvement uh, with the community. And you were the first speaker at Colorado MUFON uh, when they had their museum area in uh, Littleton. Okay. Yeah. So you were the first speaker I got to see out of the Colorado MUFON. So that was really cool, too, because... uh, serendipitous even to see that uh, there was also local C-SETI things going on. But uh, to start off, let's go ahead and talk about your background, what you do, uh, uh, your career, things like that.
3: Well, I was born on this planet to the best of my knowledge. Um, my interest in UFOs started pretty early. Uh, uh, the earliest definite recollections come from about sixth grade, uh, mostly daydreaming when I had a really boring teacher. But, uh Uh, I was also consuming uh, books at that time, uh, even that early. Uh, As I progressed out of high school and into college, I was uh, working towards a career as a pilot, and um, there's some conflicts there. Um, You know, you can't be interested in UFOs and be a pilot for some reason. uh, There's a lot of ridicule factor there, so... Um, I still had a lot of interest, but I kind of had to put it on the back burner as I got my career going. Um, after I finally got on with an airline, had some uh, some time there, built up some seniority. Then I started uh, looking for a way to do some research again. I looked at di- several different organizations and uh, trying to find one that really fit. And uh, Dr. Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer, was coming through town, and I went down to his lecture and and in just about an hour, many, many things that I was trying to put together for years just suddenly clicked, all the the reasons, the why, just suddenly made sense, and I said, this guy's on to something, so I worked real hard to uh, shift my schedule around, trade a trip, and, and uh, uh, <laughs> told my flight manager there was a seminar I really wanted to go to, <laughs> and he gave me a trip drop, and then I managed to pick up a different one, but uh, I didn't tell him what the seminar was about, it was the... Uh, uh, Ambassadors to the Universe training uh, down in Crestone in 1999, and that was the first time I went out with Dr. Greer in the field, and, uh, you know, I was scurrying to study all the, uh, the pre-study materials and everything, and uh, uh, I, w- I was on a steep learning curve. I got down to Crestone, and the uh, very first night out in the field, we had this thing comes streaking in down in the southwest that looked kind of like a meteor, but just not quite. It just was more of a energy streak than a, you know, than a uh, point of light with a tail behind it. And then it stopped instantly and was just instantly this large blue-white point of light out in the sky. Uh, we really don't know how far away. It's hard to judge a, a bright light in the night sky with no other reference, but uh, we're guessing anywhere from 2 to 20 miles away out over the uh, San Luis Valley. And uh, Dr. Rear picked up his laser pointer and, and uh, went flash-flash, and the object uh, flashed back, flash-flash, uh, matched his uh, pattern. And So I said, cool. <laughs> Being a pilot, that's kind of like flashing your landing light at somebody else, and they uh, they see you, they flash back. It's kind of like saying, hi, I see you, and they say, I see you too, and and you know that you're watching each other. Well, we basically said hi, and they said hi. Um so then, somebody else did with a million cattle power spotlight, and uh, they flashed back. And then the next thing we were supposed to try and do was was reach out mentally and try and see if we could remote view the craft or you know make mental contact of some form and uh, uh, see the occupants or or uh, telepathically reach them. And as we were just starting to do that, this pale blue white spotlight came down out of the craft and made a, like a thirty foot circle on our group scan line went down through it, and then the beam shortened back up, sucked back into the craft. It was really weird. It got shorter. It didn't just shut off like a light beam like you'd expect. It got shorter. And, you know, I looked at that, and I said, cool, we've just been scanned. Um, and that was my very first night in the field with Dr. Greer. And, uh, uh, you know, I asked, does this happen all the time? They said, no, that's a little exceptional. But uh, uh, that, was, that was quite the way to, to start my uh, Research career. (laughs) Was that the first time you had ever seen something strange in the sky? Oh, I'd seen some strange things, some things that I couldn't necessarily identify, but I had never seen anything that I could say was definitely not of our, at least conventional, technology. Um, This, uh, the way it came streaking in and stopped instantly and uh, uh, interacted with us, uh, was definitely something different. So, yeah, that's the first time I, I could say that it was definitely not of our, um, at least our acknowledged technology. And even if it was the covert military technology, which has, to the best of my knowledge, those kind of capabilities, uh, I don't think they would have stopped and you know, flashed lights and been friendly and mm-hmm. said hi in that same way. I think they would have been trying to avoid detection. So um, as far as I... You know, I've, I've done an awful lot of thinking about it, and, and uh, the uh, the logical explanation uh, uh, makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you find out about SETI? What does the
2: acronym stand for? What do they do? And what are their goals and uh, objectives?
3: SETI stands for the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, as opposed to SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They're still looking. Um, and a lot of the SETI work is um, ambassadors to the universe type, um, training people to um, to be ready to um, interact with extraterrestrials if they should visit to uh, to provide an interface between us and them. Uh, there's no government ambassador school for extraterrestrial countries. I mean, there's school for ambassadors for various other countries but uh, uh, no there's ambassador ag-
2: acknowledged.
3: <laughs> no, yeah there's no no acknowledged ambassador to the universe in the government and so Dr. Greer just started his own and uh, a lot of it is um, uh, spiritual and meditation uh, remote viewing techniques and uh, a variety of things like that but it's a uh, the object is to go out and try and make peaceful contact and uh, and serve as uh, peaceful citizen uh, ambassadors or diplomats.
2: When did you become the Colorado representative?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, actually, as far as the official representative, it's more the disclosure project. I'm the disclosure project rep for the state. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and then I have a working group here, which as far as I know is the only working group in Colorado uh, a sea working group that goes out uh, during the warmer months. Uh, we try and get out once or twice a month depending on my schedule and uh, spend an evening out in the uh, in the foothills here in a nice uh, secluded area we've got located and uh, do our contact protocols which include um, uh, some ways that we have found to attract uh Attention from what appears to be extraterrestrial craft.
2: How would someone get involved?
3: Well, they could contact uh, me. They could go through the Sea City website and look for, uh, uh, work their way down through the menus for uh, for local groups, working groups. My email address and I think phone number are in there. Um, you could also write me uh, Don Daniels at peekanet. That's p e e k a n e t. dot com. Mm-hmm. And I can put you on my mailing list, let you know when uh, when we're headed out for a field evening.
2: I wanted to talk real quick on the pilot ridicule factor.
1: <laughs>
3: um,
2: so when people know about there's a lot of joking among pilots about, about the subject?
3: Well, no, actually there's very little discussion at all. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's afraid to talk about it because... If you do talk about it, you kind of get branded as crazy, and uh, uh, your career can be in jeopardy. Now, I probably pushed the envelope just a little bit uh, a few years back to try and try and improve that situation. Um, about the time we were doing the disclosure project um, conference in Washington D.C. May 9th, of 2001, which you can watch. Uh, on the Disclosure Project website, you can download the entire uh, video of the conference and watch the, the whole two-hour thing. Um, but I was also talking to a, a bunch of the pilots I was flying with at the time, and I found that if I broached the subject and uh, you know kind of let them know it was a no-threat environment to talk about it, that uh, a lot of them, probably 50% or so, had had some kind of a UFO sighting, and many of them had had very close-range sightings where they could see, um, you know, under 500 feet where they could see structure and detail, um, very high-quality sightings. But nobody wanted to talk about it, um, you know, unless I brought it up first. Um, in June, let's see, what have, was it late June or early July of 2001, uh, we had a... Uh, uh, the, the first, the inaugural Disclosure Project Roadshow presentation of the Disclosure Project video up at uh, UC Boulder. It turned out to be the only venue we could find that was affordable uh, on short notice, and we put together a presentation at the uh, Chemistry Auditorium at UC Boulder and showed the Disclosure Project video and. Uh, the auditorium holds about 500 people. We probably had 800 people in the room, wow. and we had to turn several hundred away because we just physically couldn't get them in the doors.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, I've
1: had classes in that room before. Yeah.
3: Uh, well, we had it overfilled, and I was I was worried about the fire marshal. But mm-hmm.
2: um, yeah, that's what I've heard from pretty much anybody who knew about it that mm-hmm. was local showed up and just were blown away.
3: Yeah, but we could not get a single news media there. Um, mm. Talked to the, the local papers, the TV stations. It was like, uh, hex, hex, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And The reporters were scared to death to even cover it. Mm. Uh, we got one little mention in the newspaper. Our big break was, um, um, oh, what's the guy's name? He was a football player that had a t- drive-time talk radio show. Um, not sure I can't. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, yeah. he had a, um, a radio show, and one of the people in my group knew him and got us on the uh, on the air the day before our presentation, and that went out. I think I think his audience was about a half a million people, and uh, wow. so that really put us over the top on the on the show the next day. As we were setting up for the two o'clock show, we were moving books and stuff in about noon, and people were already lined up deep. And uh, we just totally overpacked the auditorium, presented the uh, the video. Dr. Greer spoke. And uh, it was it was interesting. I didn't realize till later that this was the same campus where about roughly mm-hmm. 40 years earlier right. uh, Dr. Condon had uh, kind of dismissed the whole Project right. Blue Book and said there's nothing to it.
2: And shut down the Air Force involvement.
3: Basically, yeah. And that was a whitewash, but... Uh, that's a whole another story, anyway. Right. We uh, we went back to the same campus, overfilled the biggest auditorium on on the campus, and said, "Oh yes, there is. There's something to it." Right. And uh, totally blew them out of the water. So it was kind of historic in a way. Yeah. Accidental, no but historic. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. We have to take a slight pause, but go ahead. Okay. Well, um, where I was leading with this deal on the um, the presentation up in Boulder. Um, at, as we were showing the video, there was a, um, a pretty classic man in black in the back of the room that uh, went running up to the projection booth and was beating on the door and demanding to be let in and, and uh, uh, saying, we can't show that, and of course we showed it. And a couple of weeks later, um, I got this phone call from the uh, from my chief pilot telling me I'd been removed from, pay, from uh, my next trip with pay, which is polite for Grounded and that I had to go uh, see the company doctor before I flew again. And uh, he gave me a little bit of a clue of what I had to defend myself against, but uh, I kind of also got the impression that the word came back around from our uh, corporate headquarters, not from the local flight office. So uh, I got the impression that it was uh, some uh, psychological warfare or uh, disinformation types that were trying to trash my career or at least harass me. Um, so I had to go and talk to the company doctor and uh, proved I was sane. So I'm, I now have the dubious distinction of being one of the certified sane pilots on the property. But uh, uh, and then just a couple weeks after that, I did a presentation for Interface Boulder, which is a, uh, a group of uh, mental health professionals and clergy that get together for a breakfast meeting once a month. And so here I am talking about the implications of extraterrestrial contact to a bunch of mental health professionals just a couple of weeks after I'd had my own sanity checked by my uh, airline. No intimidation factor there, but, yeah, uh, there is, the the ridicule factor is used even to this day to keep people quiet about the subject, especially pilots. Were you expecting or prepared for any type of retaliation or, or
2: problems because of your involvement?
3: Oh, I I knew that, uh, that I was pushing the boundaries a little bit there as far as what the company would be comfortable with, but... Uh, in a way, I was trying to trying to uh blaze a little bit of a trail for for other pilots too, yeah, and for a lot of people, I'm sure just that little incident
2: would have been a big scare and possibly could have got them to
3: shut up from there on out. Well, it was a bit of a scare. I mean, I didn't know exactly you know whether the doctor was going to be open minded or whether he and the company had an agenda, and they were going to do their best to find me incompetent, which could. Caused me to lose my uh, my pilot's licenses and my ability to fly anything. I mean, your career is literally on the line. So, um, fortunately, the doctor was open-minded, and uh, uh, it was interesting because somebody had told him about this blue spotlight, and uh, he asked me several other things, and uh, you know, he wanted to make sure that I wasn't a a threat to my passengers or anything and uh, he was comfortable with that and as he's signing the paper saying I'm fine uh, he says oh by the way what's this about this blue spotlight and I said well sir uh, that event actually happened here's letters from a couple of the scientists that were in our group that observed it I've got some more letters coming and uh, I said the illogical thing to do would be to deny it and he kind of looked at me and he looked at the letter and uh, it was signed by one of the scientists that was in the group and he says well hard to argue with that finished signing the letter and sent me upstairs to the chief pilot's office
2: hmm I wonder if that was an eye-opener for that person.
3: (laughs) Oh, I imagine it might have been, but... uh, Mm
2: -hmm. There's a lot going on. As far as being the Disclosure Project representative, what all does that entail and what other um, types of events or... or
3: Well, um, primarily the focal point for uh, Disclosure Project activities within the state, which that was the primary one. Uh, we haven't had much of anything real recently. We're hoping to do a uh, disclosure round two, uh, but it takes a lot of money to bring the witnesses together, uh, rent the conference halls, the National Press Club, whatever. Um, I think we spent about $50,000 on uh, Disclosure Project 1, uh, which came out of uh, a lot of people's back pockets, including mine. We just donated um, you know some people five thousand dollars some people uh twenty thousand dollars or so to uh to fund the project to pay for the transportation and rooms and everything for the witnesses and rent the rooms mm-hmm. for the presentations and stuff um it's expensive we got shut down pretty effectively in the media we we pretty much proved that uh that the media is not free right uh like like you'd hope it would be it's mm-hmm. it's uh, We actually got a lot better coverage around the world than we did here in the US. Mm -hmm. And uh, The media experts tell us now that approximately two billion people or one third of the world's population have seen the story on the Disclosure Project May 9, 2001 um, press conference in one form or another, whether it was print or radio or TV or something. Uh, But it's hardly known here in the United States.
2: When I ran across it, first of all, what was shocking to me is I ran across it a year after it happened which was shocking to me because I paid attention to at least the television stuff and lightly, I wasn't big into researching, but at least I was paying attention to the latest developments. And that's obviously a very large <laughs> latest development. So that showed me, first of all, that the media was hiding it, that they wouldn't give us the greatest pieces of evidence. And so next I took that paperwork, I took videos, I took—I just spread it to everybody that I knew. And uh, luckily I met um, Jordan Peace, Okay. Um, fairly recently, and he uh, got me a lot more material to hand out and give to people, which was a lot of help. And uh, he was talking about how interesting it was to shuffle around these witnesses to different um, authorities who wanted
3: to hear from them. Did you get to be involved with some of that? Oh, yeah. Right after the press conference, we uh, headed for Capitol Hill, and uh press conference was, I think it was on a Tuesday. Maybe it was Wednesday. And the next two days, we were we were visiting congressmen and senators' offices, talking primarily with staff, occasionally with the uh, actual senators. Uh, uh, as we were getting appointments during the day, the, the schedules kind of became a floating target. But uh, um, and the teams were kind of shuffling a little bit. But um, the first day, my team leader was uh, Danny Sheehan, who's the um, constitutional. Uh, Law attorney and he represented Karen Silkwood in the
1: uh, uh, the uh Yeah,
3: the, the Silkwood case. I'm trying to think of the was it Kerr McGee or the uh, I'm the nuclear plant, <laughs> uh, anyway, where she got contaminated. <laughs> he uh represented the New York, he was part of the team on the New York uh, Times Pentagon Papers uh, uh defense and uh. So between meetings with congressmen and stuff, we were talking constitutional law and privacies and freedoms and stuff. That was a pretty interesting day. And uh, as we headed into one of my representatives' office later in the day, uh, about 30 feet from the door, Danny says, well, this is your representative. You lead this one. And I'm going, huh?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: His timing was perfect because it was just time enough to get over the shock and not time enough to get scared. But I basically made the presentation to this representative staff members and uh introduced the witnesses, and they told their stories. And, uh, you know, for two days we we did that solid and uh, got a lot of good response. Actually, the guards at the entrance to the Hart Senate office building, uh, it's kind of like an airport. They've got the magnetometers and the baggage screeners and all that stuff. And when we came in the second day uh, wearing our disclosure project uh, badges, The guards were cheering us on and saying, yeah, go for it, and (laughs) really giving us the high five as we went through security there, which was kind of cool. Um, But uh, then after spending like two hours in one uh, representative's office with witnesses, and, and we had three staffers. They all had different areas of expertise and questions and stuff. Spent almost two hours with them. I get this condescending little letter back. Uh, Thank you for interest in X Y Z. If it ever shows up on the floor, I'll uh, I'll remember you were interested. I'm going. No, 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 I didn't just write you a little email about some off the wall right. subject. I briefed your people with witnesses and facts and evidence, and you send me this. We were like a cosmic hot potato. They were just passing us around Washington D.C. You know, go see so and so. He's on such and such a committee, and uh, nobody wanted to touch the subject. Nobody had the courage to take the lead so I found two things during that week one the press isn't free and two our representatives don't represent us
1: Mm -hmm.
3: they represent who has the money and the donations for them
2: the press and the representatives have been bought (laughs) both Uh, Daniel Sheehan uh, I've got one of his presentations and yeah I find him pretty fascinating fascinating also and one of his uh The legal basis he's going off of is that these projects to create these uh, um, reverse engineer or to recover craft are unconstitutional uh, by nature, so that their oaths um, to keep these projects secrets don't hold any ground. Has he gotten any. Has anybody fought that?
3: Nobody's given us a hard time about that. Uh, Mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, none of the witnesses have been. harassed uh, I probably got it worse than, than most anybody as far as the harassment at work but uh, once that was cleared up it was in a way it was kind of interesting because um, I actually even had uh, had asked the chief pilot after it was all over I said, well does this mean I can uh, continue to talk about the subject And he said I should probably be a little more careful about who my audience was but yeah I could talk about it. so I have official airline approval management approval talk about UFOs Mm -hmm. at work, which is probably a historic first. Um, So, you know, once they had run me through that ringer and and they uh, came up certified sane, then what can they do? You know, Mm -hmm. it actually gave me a little more latitude. Mm -hmm.
2: With uh, getting back, I guess, to local types of things going on, I know one of the local, are there just two regular yearly uh, CSETI national outings?
3: Uh, Usually three, maybe four. Uh, We usually do one in Crestone in uh, July and uh, one in uh, Joshua Tree National Forest, usually out of Palm Springs or uh, Desert Hot Springs, somewhere down in that area that we'll uh, find a hotel that we kind of center at. And then uh, Mount Shasta also. So those are the three main sites. They'll sometimes do one on the East Coast. Uh, uh, They've done some up in New York. I'm trying to remember the name of the place, but uh, Mm -hmm. they've done several around the country, and you can check those on uh, the CSETI website, cseti.org, and just look for a schedule of events or um, something like that.
2: Yeah, I'll put those URLs up on the audio posting also. Um, With the Crestone at least events i've known probably at least for the last few years at least someone who's gone to join and that uh, all of them you know have a great experience and there's i think at pretty much everyone that i've talked to they have some uh experiences that they can't explain
3: oh yeah we have some really high strangeness events um uh, I have never gone on one of these outings where we didn't have at least one major sighting, um, and uh, this last year was just really active. Uh, all kinds of stuff going on. We've um, we always get new people coming in, and it seems like the limiting factor is the least psychologically prepared person in the group. So when you've got a big training going on, uh, there there are some limits on on how much can happen. Seems like if if somebody if the craft gets too close, somebody starts to freak out, then they will back away. Uh, they mm. seem to be very conscious of our comfort level. Uh, but uh, Dr. Greer's also a magnet, so things are always happening when he's there. Um, That's why it's, it's always a good time. I call it my reality break. It's a, it's a week to get away <laughs> to reality, uh-huh. away from this uh, matrix that we live in. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, one thing I've found is there are no doubt magnets out there. And one way to see things is to hang out with some of these magnets.
3: But you can also learn some of the techniques, the uh, Mm -hmm. remote viewing and uh, thought projection and various uh, telepathic type techniques that are really we all have the innate ability to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that it's kind of beat out of us by our society you know you tell the kids, "Well, there's no such thing as invisible friends. stop talking about it and after a while, the kid kind of gives up and and they and they start to lose the ability to interact with these quote invisible friends or whatever
1: mm-hmm. they,
3: they lose uh, psychic abilities uh, because culturally they just aren't acceptable mm-hmm. in this culture in other cultures around the world uh, a lot of that is much more accepted and even encouraged.
2: With that, he said he, you have a protocol also mm-hmm. that you work with, and this is a protocol to try to call and say hello?
3: Yeah, the basic uh, protocol has three different uh, three different aspects. One, we have some recordings that were made uh, actually by a BBC camera crew in a crop circle is the main one we use. Uh, there's also some that were recorded uh, with UFO sightings. And uh, we broadcast those on any radio, it doesn't matter, a, a CB radio, a little Motorola talk what I generally use. And uh, so we send those out, and the, the idea being that if they hear something that is of their origin, they'll assume, being broadcast, they'll assume that we're trying to get their attention.
1: Mm.
3: And uh, that seems to help attract them. We also use lights, although nowadays we generally only use the lights when we see something, we'll flash at them and see if they flash back, see if we can get a little interactive uh, nonverbal communication going. But the third, third aspect and the most um, effective is consciousness itself. They seem to have technology that interfaces directly with consciousness and if we are in a meditative state to where we are um, kind of at one with the universe and able to allow our consciousness to travel out, we can go out and remote view, find a craft, um, basically knock on the door and ask permission to come aboard, uh, Mm -hmm. in a sense, uh, and invite them to come interact with us. And uh, So basically reaching out in consciousness and inviting them to follow us back -hmm. Is uh, probably the most effective part of the uh, of the trilogy.
2: Yeah, Uh, I have a funny story with that protocol, and well, interesting and cool story for me. Uh, um, I went out to the UFO Watchtower in uh, Cooper, which is in Mm -hmm. the San Luis Valley, which is very about what maybe twenty miles from Crestone, if Mm -hmm. that. Very close to Crestone and just uh, west of the Sand Dune, and I had brought that BBC Crop Circle sound, and I was mm-hmm. familiar with the SETI protocol. Uh, but uh, I went out there, and I just I met Judy Mezlin, who owns a watchtower, and we just started talking and talking and talking, and we we're spending all our time talking. And I had mentioned I had brought this sound, but I didn't know the entire protocol, and unfortunately, nobody else there knew the protocol. Well, lucky enough, this couple came and they started talking with us and they became part of our little group just talking for hours. And uh, eventually I had mentioned I brought that sound and the lady said, well, I actually am part of c and I've gone to a lot of these uh, outings, including some Crestone ones. So she showed me how to do the protocol. So we went up to the top of the watchtower. We did the protocol. We should have been watching the sky, but instead we just got to talking again inside. Luckily, my sister was watching, and we had camped a lot uh, as kids, and uh, so she she knew how to spot stars and satellites and things. And she says, "Look, there's a satellite." Well, I get out there, and uh, Judy and all of us, you know, saw this extremely bright object just above the mountains, um, just above Creststone really, is where we spotted it. Mm-hmm. Just very bright, moving slow. And, uh, moving to the, uh, south. And, uh, moving... It was solid and slow, so that's why she said satellite. Plus, she had nothing to really reference. But she could tell it was something strange. I could tell that from her face. She's a pretty... Not much gets her, but she was pretty shocked. Uh, so we're watching this thing. When it got directly over the sand dunes to the, uh... What, east of us, it just steadily dims like a dimmer switch. hmm And then it, uh then the C-SETI person, I was like, wow, it's gone. C-SETI lady had already gotten to her car and had her binoculars on it. Mm -hmm. So she said at that point she saw it fly into Mount Blanca, which is at that end of that string of mountains, which uh, seems to have a lot of things happening there.
3: Yeah, there have been actually reports of aircraft flying right into the mountain uh, in broad daylight and just disappearing. No crash, no nothing. They just kind of merge in. Mm -hmm. So I don't know whether it's holographic or... uh, whether they're phase-shifted to where they can merge right through solid matter or what, but uh, that's been reported numerous times. Actually, the way the, uh, we kind of got a clue on the consciousness aspect of the, of the uh, protocol is that uh, there have been a number of reports of people sighting the UFO and just kind of thinking out loud, gosh, I wish it had come closer so I could see it better, mm-hmm. and it would. It would make yeah. a turn and come towards them, and so we started to realize there was a connection, and we started doing it deliberately.
2: A oh, good idea. Yeah, I've been finding that in my investigations of investigating sightings lately. Uh, lots
3: of connection with consciousness of the viewer. hmm Um, and and the exact protocol is probably not nearly as important as your intent, right? Your intention, yeah. uh, and your preparedness for yeah. whatever high strangeness might occur. Uh, if if you're uh, comfortable with it, then things can happen
2: quite easily. Yeah. Yeah, when people talk about the protocol and uh, if they're skeptical, I can't really be skeptical because the only, (laughs) (laughs) the first time I tried it truly, you know, I had that experience. Actually, um, coincidentally enough, I came back from Albuquerque last night and me and my cousin were, uh, had passed by the watchtower last night on our way back home and uh, we got up on the watchtower and I showed him the protocol. We had tried it and uh, we didn't see anything but. It was already just an incredibly magical experience because serendipitously enough, we got there in time for the moon to rise and come over the mountains, and it was just gorgeous.
3: Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, very magical valley down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Crestone is great.
2: So, uh, have you attended some of the other national uh, outings?
3: I've been to uh, Joshua Tree twice, and mm-hmm. uh, this last year I went to Mount Shasta okay. for the first time in Mount Shasta is really neat. When you get up on the mountain there at night, the uh, skies can be so clear. Uh, of course, the Milky Way is just totally totally in your face, but uh, it was so clear and bright that we could see the Andromeda galaxy with the naked eye, which is wow. really right on the ragged edge of being able to perceive.
2: Holy cow.
3: And it was beautiful in binoculars. Mm-hmm. When
2: did you go to uh, to that one?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, I think that was in September. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: I guess as far as you've seen then with all of your experience with the evolution of the phenomenon, do you see trends? Do you see um, something happening? Do you have a... I guess what is your overall feeling of where we're headed with all of this?
3: Well, unfortunately, over the years, we've seen less and less of the really overt sightings. um, And... uh, the feeling seems to be that the the covert military guys are getting better and better at targeting them, and uh, and shooting at them, and so they're they're less able to fully materialize and be visible for us. Uh, we're seeing more and more uh, subtle phenomena, uh, just right on the ragged edge of perception, or or even uh, um, encounters in consciousness, uh, but not as much of the fully physical sightings. Uh, we're, we're hoping we can, uh, we've been campaigning for years to get the military to stand down the order to uh, to try and target and shoot them down. Uh, so far, not successfully. But, uh, just as an example of one of the more subtle things, we were out one night uh, in Crestone several years ago. and uh, Massive thunderstorms all around us, so we're all sitting in the cars out there in the Baca waiting for the storm to pass. And it seemed like it was very calm right around us. It was just no wind, and the lightning wasn't anywhere close to us. And the clouds had almost dissipated as they went overhead and then reform. But finally, things settled up, uh, settled down a little bit, and the lightning was uh, easing up. We got out of the cars, but we could see these little kind of red, almost like LED flashes around the horizon, you know, maybe a mile away from us or more. And <clears throat> very subtly. Uh, with kind of a soft focus, you could see what looked like a very, very large, huge dome right over the top of us. It was like being inside the King Dome before they took it down. Um, and we thought that was kind of cool. The uh, and we had some, some very subtle energy form um, entities that were just on the very ragged edge of perception that night. But the next day we got back to the. Uh, uh, The hotel we were staying, the little restaurant, and the the guy, the cook there, was acting very strange. And finally somebody got him to talk about what was happening. He'd gone out that night before to watch the thunderstorm. And uh, in the lightning flashes, he was seeing this huge dome down south of him out over the bakke. He had no idea where we went at night, but uh, it was basically centered right over where we were. And there was a house, a farmhouse, and a barn, and some trees across the street from from where he was standing, that normally would block two, the view of about two thirds of the great sand dunes. And uh, he could see a little on the left, a little on the right. Well, in these lightning flashes through this very subtle transparent dome, he could see the entire sand dunes, and the farmhouse was gone.
1: Hmm.
3: And uh, this kind of freaked him out just a little bit. So the next morning he went out to to see, you know, if the farmhouse was still there, and it was. So uh, he actually he served his breakfast and didn't say anything and, and then shut the restaurant down for a while and we were, we were trying to get lunch and he just wasn't back, finally came back around uh, 1.30 in the afternoon. I guess he'd gone up to the hospital in Salida to talk to the doctors because he thought he was going crazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, he finally told somebody what he'd seen and we said, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense because uh, there have been numerous accounts of, of um the way these things can bend light waves around them so that they appear invisible uh, and what's behind them is what you see so in this case they were probably over us and over the uh, the farmhouse and what he was seeing was the light waves bending around so he could see the entire great sand dunes and anything in the middle was essentially invisible to him it was, it was probably at a much higher vibra- vibrational frequency uh, kind of phase shifted to where it was more near astral than physical, but uh, just just barely bleeding through into uh, physical perception.
2: What did he have to say to that?
3: Well, I think it relieved him a little bit that uh, that we didn't think he was crazy. Mm-hmm. He didn't know a whole lot about our C SETI group except that we were kind of a uh, a far out group that was spending the week down there, and. Uh, uh, you know he he seemed okay the rest of the week but i understand that about a month later he packed up and moved out of the valley he just uh, oh, wow. couldn't take the uh the energy and the high strangeness of yeah. the san luis <laughs> valley so that's unfortunate but mm-hmm.
2: some people just aren't ready i guess uh with the local outings uh what do those entail usually
3: well we just have a a group uh, i just send out Email note to uh, to people who are on my list, and uh, you know, when I get my schedule and figure out what nights we can get together, we'll schedule a month, uh, you know, a, a night or two during a month, and we meet at a at a uh, members' place up near Conifer. That's uh, on a private road, back, uh, pretty secluded, uh, no traffic going by, and, and pretty well shielded from the lights of Denver and stuff. So we've got a pretty dark skies and, and a Pretty wide open view of this of the night sky. There's a, there's a few hills around, but still we have got most of the night sky visible, and uh, so it's a, it's a real good site. It's a close close in drive, but uh, we don't get bothered by anybody up there, so it's, it works well.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And we'll just stay out uh, working on the CSETI protocols. We always have somebody new, so we're we're always training people on how it all works, and uh, stay out until midnight, one, two in the morning, depending on what's going on and how cold it's getting. Mm-hmm. and see what we can see. We've seen some stuff out there, uh, satellites making 90-degree turns and uh,
1: mm-hmm.
3: stuff like that. And At the very least, we have a real good astronomy night with some good binoculars yeah. and uh, uh, watching for things like the iridium satellites that flare yeah. up real bright. Uh, you can pull those up from a website. Uh, it's called Heavens Above. Heavens-above, dash I'll give you the thing mm-hmm. you can put on your website. Mm-hmm. And you can... Check when the uh, space station's coming over, or the iridium satellites, or the Hubble Space Telescope and stuff. So you can you can be looking for those things and uh, and know what they are, yeah. but uh, also looking for other things. And we occasionally see some stuff.
2: Yeah, watching the stars is always fun. And uh, uh, Conifer, though, it could be also an issue. It could be that it's very close to. Fairly close to Denver still, with a, a large metropolitan area.
3: It's fairly close to Denver, and uh, we've got a direct line of sight down at uh, um, the uh, Colorado Springs area.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, uh,
2: although you know, I've had some interesting investigations from uh, witnesses here in Golden.
3: So, mm-hmm. spectacular oh, yeah. things
2: can happen pretty much anywhere.
3: People have got good video of UFOs right over downtown Denver, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> One of my friends was uh, who kind of poo-pooed the whole thing. Was driving up um, I seventy from downtown up towards Evergreen, and he said he saw the really really strange aircraft the night before. And I said, "Well, what did it look like?" And he said, "Well, it had white and blue lights alternating in a circle around it." And I said, mm-hmm. "Welcome to the club."
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> that's no airplane. Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, you don't have any airplanes like that. No. What did he say? Was he pretty shocked, or was he? Well, shocked? he. I
3: think he kind of suspected it but didn't want to admit it to himself until, yeah. until I told him that there's no airplanes with that kind of light pattern and uh, welcome to the club. I've I've known a number of people who have uh, who I've welcomed to the club yeah. <laughs> over the years.
2: Oh, yeah. It's been fun. Yep. People get welcomed to the club every day. Do you think, in fact, you know, that's a good segue to what I was going to move to, do you think that's part of this phenomenon, is he? personal sightings by more and more people?
3: Well, you know, there's all the rumors about um, um, massive flyovers and stuff to uh, to really announce to us that we're not alone in the universe. Um, and I've seen an awful lot on both sides. I don't really know for sure some of it's channeled material, and you always wonder how much that's filtered through the person's experience base and stuff. So. You've, you can take it, consider it, but you've got to also, uh, 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 you know, consider the source. And uh, and uh, you can't really say that just because somebody channeled that something's going to happen, that it's a hundred percent sure that it will. Uh, but you know, it doesn't hurt to be looking out. Carry a camera with you if something is supposed to happen, and, and you know, keep looking up. How do you feel about disclosure? Do you think it will come about
2: soon? How would? You, how do you think it might come about?
3: Well, we were probably making some inroads during the Clinton administration. With mm. um, the current administration, uh, they have absolutely no interest in disclosure. So um, I don't think we're going to make inroads through conventional channels over the next couple, three years uh, mm. unless there's some major changes. Um, But we could have some events that kind of force the issue, and uh, that could be a good thing, too. Uh, And I think a lot more people are much more ready for it. Uh, You know, even when I did the Interface Boulder presentation, a lot of the clergy people had already talked with their congregations about the possibility of other life in the universe, and uh, had brought it up openly and in a uh, a very positive way, which I thought was, was outstanding. So it's it's getting out there, I think, with 40 years of Star Trek and uh, mm-hmm. other stuff. I don't think people they will be jumping out. jumping out of windows like they uh, were afraid they would back in the 1940s.
2: Right. Another thing that I found, at least with sightings, it seems like uh, people are much more educated. Blue Book said maybe 10% of their um, sightings were, were unknowns. Mm-hmm. But these days, I think it's a lot higher than that, especially people in a metro area where... They're used to seeing lights in the sky all day, so they're not going to report something unless it's strange,
3: typically. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me about things they've seen, and some were were pretty easily explained as something conventional that they just hadn't seen much before. But uh, there are a number that are unexplained. And so, um, you know, you've you've got to... uh, look at both sides of it, you can't just jump to the conclusion that, hey, they said it was strange, so it had to be a UFO. Uh, You wouldn't have any credibility if you went at it that way either. You've got to uh, come at it with a very open mind that it could be either way and then gather evidence and and, uh, come to a good evaluation. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask, I was going to talk
2: about, you know, like you said, this administration doesn't seem to be uh, interested in disclosure. Uh, The last, the Clinton era, they, they, they were at least researching it, and not unfortunately getting anywhere, getting stonewalled, but uh, a new administration, hopefully uh, the right one would maybe search that, but uh, related to that is the NASARA, um, about some major changes, and a lot of people don't know what that is, and we were talking about that a little bit before the interview, I want to... Do you want to describe what that is?
1: And
3: well, I have I have really mixed feelings about Nasara, and I just mm-hmm. I really don't know enough to know whether it's real. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the internet about it. Um, mm-hmm. National Economic Recovery and Stabilization Act, and it's supposed to restore us to constitutional government and restore sound money, gold-based money, etc. It sounds good. Um, I hope it's real. Um, and there's been a lot of internet chatter even this week about it, so uh you know, just do some Google searches. Um uh, I'm trying to remember the uh the website uh that's supposed to be the official website of Nasara, but there's been a lot of a lot of chatter on that and a lot of chatter about uh as soon as that's announced and the uh get a stand down order on the uh, the military shoot down orders that uh, we're supposed to have massive flyovers and uh Sightings and landing events and and all of that stuff and it will be a very overt uh, first contact. Um, again, a lot of that's coming through channeled sources. So, um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: I'll uh, you know I'm keeping an eye out. I'm carrying a camera, yeah. but uh, I'm not telling everybody that it absolutely positively is going to happen because I don't know that. I really uh, uh, have an open mind at this point and. Uh, yeah researching as much as i can and keeping an eye out but uh we'll see what happens
2: mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i'll have that link up also because uh if that's true i mean uh sorry i think it's n e s a r a um or is n e s r a it's really interesting stuff so
3: and hopefully hopefully there's some truth to it uh, Yeah, you go to the uh, snoops.com or some of those and they'll the, the mythbuster buster sites and they'll claim that it's all a uh, fraud uh, but what better way to uh, uh, create disinformation than to, to put it on one of those sites? Uh, I mean, you look at uh, look up UFOs on those sites and they'll say that that's all uh, a fraud too or, or doesn't really exist. So you just can't believe much of anything. You've got to just find out for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you were...
2: Uh to give advice to someone in the public who's interested in the field, or uh, maybe they're just a little afraid, but uh, they want to do more investigation, what advice would you give them?
3: Okay, well, a good place to start is to go to the cSETI website, uh, cseti.org, and uh, look at Dr. Greer's position papers, and... Uh, You get a good background. Actually, a good portion of his book is is on the website for free. You can also get the books, uh, Extraterrestrial Contact, The Evidence and Implications, is the first book. His second book is Disclosure. And uh, I understand he's just about to come out with his third book, which uh, uh, names names and takes no hostages. (laughs) He he got a little tired of uh, being kicked around, and so he just... uh, He's cutting loose on this third book, and it's going to be uh, very, very illuminating as to who's behind a lot of this stuff. He uh, he names names and corporations and people, and uh, and exactly what their connections are to the uh, uh, covert government, the the uh, MJ12 uh, cabal, and uh, I'm sure there's going to going to be a big stir when that comes out.
2: Mm-hmm. So he states he believes that the MJ12 uh, exists.
3: Yeah, they've been through several name changes, PI40, and some other things, but uh, it's basically an outgrowth of the original. Uh, majestic 12 uh, was the was 12 top scientists from different disciplines that uh, Vannevar Bush put together to study the UFO uh, uh, debris from Roswell and others. And uh, out of that, they uh, it expanded. There were there were more people involved, but they uh, they basically took it. Black ops, covert, and out of the constitutional chain of command and oversight. Eisenhower early on was 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 um, involved and knew what was going on. He saw some of the stuff. Uh, one of our witnesses, Brigadier General Stephen Lufkin, who's still to this day a practicing Jag attorney in the uh, uh, in the Guard, um, was on Eisenhower's staff in the White House back then, and he. Actually handled some of the materials from Roswell, tiny eyed beams with magenta hieroglyphic-looking symbols on it, and metal that you could crumple up and it would pop back out and stuff. And uh, they they took him downstairs and passed this box around and were uh, talking about it. And then they asked what it was and they told him. Uh, so he's actually handled it. He's one of our witnesses, and uh, you know, as, a, as an attorney with a professional license, just like I'm a pilot with a professional license. If we're perpetrating a hoax on the public, then we're subject to losing our professional credentials. Um, and he sticks to his story. So um.
2: Another one, Vannevar Bush, his secretary, is also a witness. Uh, and all of this, you could also, I think the executive summary is free to download, isn't it? Um,
3: I believe the executive summary, last I checked, was free to download for... Uh, people who were C-SETI members. I see. I think that was in the members-only section, but mm-hmm. I'm, that could have changed. I don't know. Yeah. And even if
2: you can't get it for free, you can purchase that. I'm, I'm
3: you can purchase it uh, for, I think, somewhere like 5 bucks or something. It's not much.
2: Which has got some great information and witness testimony.
3: Actually, that executive briefing, well, there's the executive summary and then the, uh, the uh, disclosure project briefing. And we gave that entire 500-page briefing document to every single senator and congressman, hand-delivered to their offices. Mm -hmm. It at the very least got to their staff. Mm -hmm. So they cannot deny that it did not come to their offices. Every single one, and not a single one of them, had the courage to do anything about it. Do you think
2: it shocked some of them? Or do you think some of them knew? Or do you think some of them disbelieved, maybe some of all?
3: All of the above. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: But, unfortunately, nobody did anything about it, really.
3: Yeah. I mean, well, even Jerry Ford um, called for hearings when he was a congressman, and uh, and he went on to be president. But everybody's afraid that if they take on the subject that they'll be, their careers down the tubes, and so nobody's willing to take it on.
0: All right. So that was my interview. Of course, the audio is a little rocky. I'm sure I'll get some people complaining Um uh-huh. Unfortunately, there are some people who are difficult to satisfy. Even though, you know, I do my best to provide this stuff for free and have the best audio available, some people get a little unhappy when everything isn't perfect. But hey, you know, it's better than nothing. And and uh, the cool thing is, I think it gives it. To me, it was kind of fun to listen to because it gave it sounds older and and, and it's kind of fun that way and uh, it's different from the everyday. Um, that's how I felt about it. I don't know if you'll agree, but I hope you do. And I hope you really enjoyed the interview. In fact, I should say an update. And, uh, all the stuff he was talking about, by the way, you can find disclosureproject at disclosureproject.com. If you go to media, you can download a lot of those files from, uh, Dr. Greer. Uh, some of the, and on the right-hand side, it looks like they have links also. So some really good stuff. Dr. Greer has certainly, um... Straight away from sticking to just the real credible speakers, he now kind of gets into a lot of different stuff. In fact, recently he says he might have access to an extraterrestrial body, which uh, he was a uh, an emergency room doctor, and he's going. Uh, there's a doctor Bravo. He said that he's going to go have uh, examine this body, so they can take a look and see if perhaps. It is really extraterrestrial, and if so, I hope they do uh, the due diligence around that to um, confirm that and uh, then also share that with the public because, of course, that would be quite the big deal. There isn't much history about how this body was acquired, but uh, hopefully we'll hear that soon. He's raising money to make a documentary, and I know he wants to have it part of that documentary and uh, so that's an update on Dr. Greer and what he's up to. Otherwise, I want to thank you all so much for joining me again. Uh, next weekend, we are having Scotty Roberts, if I've got the name right. And he does uh, Intrepid magazine. It's a paranormal magazine about all kinds of uh, different stuff. So uh, if you've seen it, you know, he they've got some great artworks on it, and uh, Scotty uh, does there, and uh, also Micah, who we had on before, he's part of uh, Intrepid Magazine, but yeah, we'll be talking to Scotty Roberts, he sounds like a neat guy, and uh, I'm really excited to be interviewing him, so don't forget to join me next week, visit ufodailynews.com for the latest in UFO news, don't forget the stories I mentioned earlier, you will find under the UFO news feed. Uh, and again, uh, let's enjoy my closed music from Two Earth Minutes. Adios, muchachos. Talk to you soon.